morning, church. As you have a seat here this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 16 specifically. We're also going to be in Acts chapter 9 this morning, but Galatians 1, 11 through 16, Acts chapter 9. I don't know how many of you this past week have seen the PBS Ken Burns documentary, six part, 16 part, excuse me, documentary on country music, and the history of country music. Any of you seen that? Anyone familiar? We've got some hands that are going up. You've seen this, so you know what I'm talking about here. Uh, Ken Burns has this way, whether it's the Civil War, whether it's the history of baseball, whether it's the Vietnam War, whether it's the National Parks, or really just uh, it being entertaining, but also immensely informative. And so he's, he's doing his Ken Burns thing with country music. And it's not surprising, I know many of you know this, that the very roots of country music are up the Mississippi Delta, into Tennessee, and, and here even in Alabama. So it's not surprising that that history would intersect with our own history. Early on in the documentary, he tells a story of how a 24-year-old musician by the name of Hank Williams, 80 miles south of us, is finishing his band a concert out of Fort Deposit, Alabama. And he is passed out in the back seat along with his bandmates, and his mother is driving him and the band to Montgomery for their next gig. And he is sound asleep when his mother tries to rouse him and says, Hank, Hank, I just saw the light. Now, what she was talking about wasn't a vision from the heavens, but rather the airport lights coming into Montgomery, and she wanted him and also the, the rest of the band to get up and get out of her vehicle. She had had enough of the country music uh, lifestyle, I guess you could say. But that stuck with Hank Williams. That, that line, I saw the light. So much so that Hank Williams would, would pin one of the most iconic country music songs, uh, drawing upon that very verbiage of his mother. And I, I want you to hear it, but before you hear it, this is a special version that you're going to hear that shows a little bit of the personality of Hank Williams, but also, I'm going to need your help. Can everybody, I, now listen, if you leave me, uh, this is going to be helpless here, so I need everybody to say on the count of three that we can help you. Can you help me? Yeah. Wow, I'm really excited about this, okay? Now, I've never led music before, but it's going to be an obvious cue, and I'm going to be the song leader this morning, and you're going to sing along. But before, I want you to hear a little bit of this song. I saw the light. Stop. Pause. Now, which song am I singing? I wrote so many of them to the same tune until I don't know which one I'm starting off on yet. <laughs> Sound like Irving Berlin. He's the only man I know steals from himself. <laughs> That's an honest man, ain't it? Ain't that an honest man? Yeah, that is. Huh? Rivers, did you give the right introduction? Uh, are you sure? Yeah, they're all the same. Are they all the same? <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. Now. That's pretty good. Go. Now, you hear him? That's all. all right, River, let's go. I wouldn't let my dear Savior 
sing-along on Sunday morning right here. I'm tempted to get Miss Linda to come to the piano, and I'm just going to continue this. But the temptation I will resist. I will resist. Okay, so Ken Burns tells us that the roots of that song are 80 miles south of us going into Montgomery, Alabama, but we know better, don't we? I mean, we, we know better than that, right? Because we hear this song and we say, whoa, that, there's something Pauline about this. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think this is a 1947 song as much as a song that was written on the way to Damascus. I don't think this is a mid-20th century song. I, I think the roots of this song are mid-first century. When a guy by the name of Saul was wandering in sin and he saw the light. The passage before us in Galatians chapter 1 verses 11 through 16 is this man, Paul's, I saw the light testimony. It is the story of him, a persecutor of the church that would, through the grace of God, become the greatest proclaimer, the greatest proclaimer of the grace of God that is known to all of human history, both Gentile and Jew alike. He tells us in these verses here, his B.C. testimony, his before Christ testimony, how, how he was living a life filled with sin, and uh, like a stranger in the night, Jesus came and Paul saw the light. You can read it with me in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it. Well, how did you receive it, Paul? Through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles. Here is Paul's I saw the light testimony. And it is a reminder of two ways that his testimony intersects our testimony as followers of Jesus. And in your copy of God's Word, I want you to see, I want you to discover, maybe for the first time, that our hope is only found in God's work for us. This is what Paul is saying, that his hope is found in God's work for him. Not, not Paul's Work for God. Notice again in this passage, verse 13, you've heard of my former life in Judaism. I persecuted the church of God violently. Not only did he persecute the church of God, he did it violently. Verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond my own age, among my own people. He has prestige. He has position. He has studied under the foot of one of the most famous rabbis of that first century day. He was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. This is what he tells us in his letter to the church at Philippi. So here is a person who knew God, but had not seen the light. 
here's a person who was faithful in his religious pursuits, but he was wrong. He knew about God, and he was zealous to follow God. And in his mind, as a first century Jew, his, his passion was to stomp out this threat to Judaism. The idea that a a person by the name of Jesus could die upon a cross was to him an anathema. It was to him uh, the the very contradiction of what a Messiah was to be because even the Old Testament says that, that one is cursed who is hung upon a tree. And so in his mind, this early Christian movement is something that must be stomped to be faithful to God. And so he puts all of his life into stopping the missionary growth of the early church. And he gives us just a little synopsis. He tells us of the revelation of Jesus that comes to him. He tells us in, in verse 15 here how, how he was, uh, when he was set apart before he was born and called him by his grace, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now, when did that happen, Paul, you would ask? Well, Acts chapter 9 is when that happened. You maybe, if you've been around the church long enough, would, would know this story. I just give you the brief cliff notes of the story that Paul's referring to here. In Acts chapter 9, he was on his way. His name wasn't Paul then, it was Saul. He was on his way to persecute the church. He wanted to get from the high priest there in Damascus a a list of those Jewish Christians so he could pull them from their home, take them back to Jerusalem, and put them in prison. He, He is zealous. He is faithful in pursuing God by trying to stomp out Christianity. And this is what happened from Acts chapter 9, a flash of light from heaven, knocked him from his horse. And here we have the voice that comes from heaven, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And if you remember the story in Acts chapter 9, he asks, Saul does, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Here is Paul's, I saw the light moment. The light that he saw wasn't an hallucination. The light that he saw wasn't a mirage nor a vision, but the light that he saw was the very risen Christ in all of his glory and his beauty. And here is Saul becoming Paul. Here is Saul, the persecutor of the church, becoming the greatest proclaimer of the risen Lord Jesus that the church has ever known. Here is Paul's I saw the light moment. I wonder what your I saw the light moment is. Here's the temptation with Acts chapter 9. The temptation is to say, well, I I don't have that kind of dramatic story. My testimony doesn't go down the road of a a Damascus way experience. I've never been in jail. I've I've never experienced drug addiction or gambling addiction. Uh, My my testimony is not one of being uh, captured by God's grace in the midst of divorce proceedings. And and praise God for any testimony that goes down the roads of addiction and despair and challenge. But Paul's testimony is descriptive and not prescriptive. It is descriptive of how God captured this persecutor of the church. But it isn't a pattern that all the rest of the testimonies that come after Paul have to follow. For for many of us in this room, our Damascus road experience is an experience of growing up, it very well may be, in the church, and you had parents that raised you and pointed you to the gospel, they brought you to church, and you had Sunday school teachers who poured into you, and at the age of 8, or at the age of 12, or at the age of 14, you turned from your sin, and you trusted in the finished work 
of your Savior. And I say, praise the Lord, you saw the light. Do you know it takes as much of the blood of Jesus Christ to save the, the daughter of a deacon as it does to save the hardened heart of a drug-addicted atheist? Do you know it, it is just as much a miracle of the Holy Spirit to capture the heart of the 14-year-old who can count on two hands how many times or how uh, many times he or she hasn't been in church as it does to save the convicted murderer on death row? Any person who is blind in their sin, who can see through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is a miracle of God, and we celebrate it. You saw the light. Praise the Lord. When was that for you? When, when was that moment in time that you were lost in your sins and you were found by His grace? When was that moment in your life where you were wandering aimlessly, maybe even with religious pursuits, even with a, a desire to be faithful to him, even with a belief in God? Do you notice what Saul is telling us as he is Paul? He is telling us that it is not enough for us to be zealous in belief in God. But that wasn't enough. You know, there is one certainty I have about hell, and there is not a single atheist in hell. You can believe in God and not be a follower of Jesus. Because Saul was. Saul believed in God. He believed in God so much that he would put his life on the line. He believed in God so much that he would drag out mothers and fathers, even while their children were saying, not my dad, not my mom, what are you doing? He believed in his cause so much, but that wasn't enough. And so it may be for you that there's never been a time in your life where you've moved from belief in God bowing your knees before God, where you've moved from a cognitive, intellectual understanding that there's a God who exists to you coming to that place where the gospel of Jesus Christ captures your heart and you realize that you are a sinner and you turn from your sin and you trust in the finished work of the gospel. And you say, well, you know something, there's never been a time in my life where I haven't believed in God. That's not enough. You say, well, my testimony is more of a journey Praise God, all of our testimonies are a faith journey. But that faith journey has a moment in time where we move from disbelief to belief, where we move from faith in us to faith in Him. And if, and if that's your story, tell that story. I remember that old hymn, I love to tell the story of unseen things above. I love to tell the story. We, we live in a day and age that is more resistant to the claims of Christianity, but is yet simultaneously uh, open to your personal story. It is, it is powerful what happens when you say, I remember when. 
And it very well may be that there are family members in your life. It very well may be that there are neighbors in your life and coworkers in your life who, who would never give you a hearing when you say, hey, listen, I'm going to open up to the book of Genesis, and I'm going to go from Genesis to Revelation to tell you of the truth of God. But there is something powerful, something powerful when you say, let, let me tell you how the God of the Bible intersected my life. Oftentimes, as I've moved to Birmingham for the second time, people will say, what's brought you here? Well, uh, I'm on staff at Dawson. What do you do at Dawson? I'm one of the pastors at Dawson. What kind of pastor are you? Well, I'm the senior pastor at Dawson. Well, how did you become the senior pastor at Dawson? You know what I say? I don't say anything about pastor search teams. I don't, say, I don't say anything about school and credentials. I say, let me tell you a story. When I was 13 years old, I put all of my hope in sports. I put all of my hope in baseball, basketball, and football. And in that moment, at the age of 13, I didn't go looking for him, but he captured me in his grace. And at 106 Elgin Place, I turned to him because I ultimately knew in that moment that I had a lot of questions and only Jesus was the answer. Now, is that the exact words I used? No. But how would it be if we would love to tell the story? What would it look like for us to, to tell the stories of growing up and to tell the stories of, of, of being a war veteran and tell the stories of our football days and tell the stories of our college days? But more than any other story, our family knew, our grandchildren knew, our neighbors knew that the greatest story that has captured our heart is the story, the story of the gospel. So let's tell that story. Let's make sure that there's not a spouse who says, I'm not really sure the story of my husband or my wife. Let's make sure that our sons and daughters know, they know the story of mom and dad's faith in Jesus. Let's make sure that, that grandparents pass on the baton of faith to their grandchildren by telling the story of God's grace capturing their hearts. We love to tell the story. May it be that God gives us the boldness to tell people that our hope is found not, not in what I've done, but our hope is found in God's work for us. Notice also in this passage here, not only is our hope found in God's work for us, but our identity is found in God's work in us. Go back to verse 15 and 16. Galatians chapter 1. Notice the verbs that Paul uses to describe his I saw the light moment. God set me apart from birth, verse 15. He called me by his grace, verse 15. He revealed his son to me, verse 16. He called Paul to preach among the Gentiles. God set him apart. God called him by his grace. God revealed his son to him. God called him to preach. God is the subject. Paul is the object. God is the one that is doing the initiation here. God is the one that is setting him apart. God is the one that is calling him. God is the one that is revealing him. God is the subject. Paul is the object. And so it is with your story and my story. Isn't we go and meet God, we, we respond by faith to his activity, understanding even the faith to believe is a gift given to us by a God who pursues us. This is really important. And if you get this wrong, you, you can misunderstand Christianity mightily. Because if you get this wrong, this who is the subject and who is the object, you might begin to think that you as a follower of Jesus is a virtue that you have somehow attained. 
So, so you think to yourself that I'm a follower of Jesus, so this sets me apart from others. Or you might wrongly think that you're above others. You might wrongly think that you're superior to others because of your Christian faith. But you need to understand that salvation is not the reward at the end of a heroic journey. Your, your salvation, you being a follower of Jesus, is not because you survived the arduous quest and at the end you slayed the dragon and you received the reward of eternal life. That is not the I saw the light testimony. You are a follower of Jesus by grace alone, not by your works. We're not followers of Jesus because we're wiser than unbelievers. We're not followers of Jesus because we've pursued him more faithfully here. We're followers of Jesus because he has captured us by his grace. And in his gift, we have responded by faith. Praise the Lord. But it is his work. This past week, many of you know that we had an artist with us. One of my favorite artists, I said last week, Sandra McCracken. Great partnership that Dawson was able to have with Sanford to bring in one of the leading musicians of the 21st century for the Christian church. One of the things I love about Sandra McCracken is that she, along with others, about 20 years ago, 15 years ago, there was a movement of God that began at Belmont University where some of these older hymns that had just, for all practical purposes, become obsolete, begin to be dusted off, the richness of the hymns, theological depth of the hymns but many of which were forgotten, many of which the, the melodies were not very singable. And so there began to be a movement that was called Indelible Grace, and Sandra McCracken was a part of that movement. And so they began to dust off these hymns. And one of my favorite songs of Sandra McCracken is not, not her lyrics. In 1776, there was a man by the name of John Stocker. Now, a lot of things happened in 1776. But I want to know if you know that John Stocker in 1776 wrote one of the richest hymns that I want you to just hear her sing and think about how it intersects with your life and the very words that Paul is saying in Galatians 1. Listen to the lyrics. My mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart of my tongue thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affection and bound my soul fast oh, I hate to stop it right there I really do but I want you to hear this my mercy my God is the theme of my song the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue Thy free grace alone, from the first to the last, hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. What is the theme of your song? What binds your soul fast? What is the joy of your heart? What is the boast of your tongue? All of us answer this, and how we answer this makes all the difference. And even as followers of Jesus, we can, we can fall into the temptation to not answer this question in a way that is befitting of our inheritance as followers of Jesus. And at times, we can answer this question by answering it with the false narratives of our world, that who we are, our hope, and our identity is found in what we achieve. And this is the problem with achievement identity. That as long as we're climbing the ladder to the next rung of success, we feel good about ourselves. 
And this is what's so subtle about it is that when you find your identity and your hope on the ladder of success, you ultimately become one of the most miserable people in the world because you find yourself looking down at all the individuals who in your mind have not climbed the ladder as successfully as you are, and so you are a person that is ultimately consumed with pride. On the flip side of this, though, when you find your identity and your achievements, at times you don't look down, but you begin to look up because you realize no matter how high the ladder of success that you climb, there is another rung above you, and what can begin to happen is you become an envious person looking at to, to the people to your left and to your right that have gotten higher than you. They got the promotion instead of you. They got into the school instead of you. They got the fill in the blank, and you become an envious person. So you have pride on the ladder of achievement. You have envy on the ladder of achievement. But what happens when you fall off the ladder? And it's not because you let go, but sometimes when we put our identity in our achievement, the boss comes in and says, guess what? Corporate is having to downsize. Thank you for 25 years, but you've got to go find a new career or a new identity. I know that you've always desired to be this, but I regret to inform you, you did not get into this graduate program. Do you lose your identity in that moment, or is it an opportunity that is missed? How do we frame this? Is it pride? Is it envy? Is it despair and depression when we feel as if we haven't lived up to some type of standard that is imposed, whether it be by us or by others around us? And so it is that identity ladder is a ladder that ultimately doesn't lead us back to what Christ desires to give us, where your identity is not found in the circumstances around you, but your identity is found in Christ in you. And this is the gift that Paul is talking about. You see, he could say, my identity is in all of my Jewish achievements, but he's saying that wasn't enough. He climbed the ladder, he had the view, and he said it's not enough. And so Saul, Paul, is saying to us, there's got to be a better way, and that way is the way of Jesus. One of the things I love about Tim Tebow is, is Tim Tebow's climbed a ladder. AP Player of the Year, Tim Tebow, Heisman Trophy winner, Tim Tebow, quarterback, Florida, two national championships, Tim Tebow starting NFL quarterback for the Denver Broncos, Tim Tebow led them into the playoffs, Tim Tebow, this wonderful narrative, Tim Tebow, that's a a lot of a ladder to climb. But in his book, Shaken, he, he talks about how he got to the top of the ladder and there was another rung to climb to. And guess what? He wasn't able to get there. And if you know his story, his story is being cut from the Broncos, cut from the Patriots, and then ultimately in 2015 being cut from the Eagles. In his book, Shaken, he talks about how his, his identity in that moment was so wrapped up, but there was a better way. He said, listen to his own words, being cut hurt. No doubt it hurt. Being told I couldn't do something that I loved doing and was so passionate about playing quarterback left me the the phrase of his book. It left him shaken. What do you do when something that has defined you your entire life is gone? 
what do you do when your platform disappears? And then he asks you, he asks me, what do you do when your perfect family is torn apart? What do you do when you go bankrupt? What do you do when your looks begin to fade? What do you do when the person that said, I do, ultimately through their actions say, I don't anymore? What do you do? Notice what he says. My identity is not in my achievements. I am a child of God. I am a child of God. My foundation for who I am is grounded in my faith and a God who loves me and a God who gives me purpose and a God who sees the big picture and a God who always has a greater plan. Who am I? I am the object of his love. Who, who are you? Are you really your accomplishments? Are you really your failures? Are you really the the rung of the ladder that you've climbed to? Or are you a child of God who finds your identity in Christ in you and not the circumstances around you? Where is your identity found, child of God? It is found in God's work in you. Where is your hope found? It is found in God's work for you. Praise the Lord. You all the light. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you this morning thanking you for the testimony of, of, of Paul running from you in pursuit of, of religious fervor, running from you and belief in you. And we realize that, that we can know about you and not be a follower of yours that we can even be faithful in our attendance and our pursuits of religiosity and ultimately not be one who has been captured by the grace of your son, Jesus. I pray for the person today that says, you know, I, I cannot point to a time where I've repented from my sin and trusted in the work of Jesus. I pray that you would give that person, even today, a holy unrest that there's something stirring in their soul that would point them to you. Lord, we thank you that salvation is not our pursuit of you, but rather your pursuit of us. That while we were dead in our sins, you came to redeem us, to call us, to save us. So our salvation is firmly fixed in your work in us and for us. And that means that our identity is in you. And your work for us and your work in us. And while the circumstances around us might be ever-shifting and ever-changing, you are an unshakable foundation that we firmly plant ourselves in. For that, we are grateful. It's in your name we pray. Amen.